0: Robert Gary Jones was out running on the beach in Hilton Head, South Carolina, and he had on his uh, headphones, and as he was running along, he was oblivious to the fact that there was an experimental aircraft that was having difficulties, and the pilot of the airplane determined that he had to ditch the plane. He had to crash land on the beach, and it so happened that the place where he landed was right where Robert Gary Jones was running. He killed Jones instantly. This husband and father of two was taken out. You know, there are some people who would listen to a news event like that and would wonder what Mr. Jones had done to die such an unlikely death. You know, there are some people in the world who subscribe to the philosophy of karma, and they would say that it was just the universe getting even with Mr. Jones. But anyone who has paid attention to what Jesus has had to say knows that that's just not the case. You may remember the gospel writer Luke is talking about on a certain occasion where there were people who made mention to Jesus about those uh, Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus said, do you suppose that these were greater sinners than all of the Galileans that they met such a fate? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Or do you suppose that the Tower of Siloam uh, that fell on those 18 men and killed them, that those men were worse culprits than all other men living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. That's reading from Luke chapter 13, verse 1 through 5. I think sometimes we believe that when we hear things that happen in the news, that we ascribe them as being the judgment of God upon people who are living wicked. Maybe you remember a few years ago when there was the mass shooting in Las Vegas, in Nevada, or when you've seen in the news about those uh, palatial mansions in Southern California that mudslides have caused to go down the mountain and slide and be destroyed, or perhaps when you think back to that moment just a little over 20 years ago when those airplanes crashed into the Twin Towers, or about 16 years ago when the, the Hurricane Katrina made its devastating landfall and did such havoc to the city of New Orleans. People will say, you see, that's the judgment of God upon those people because of the exceeding wickedness in those places. I believe by way of application that our Lord would say, do you suppose that the people living in those centers, uh, cities were greater sinners or worse culprits than all other Americans? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you shall all likewise perish. I don't think Jesus is saying, if you don't want your attitude, you're going to die the same kind of physical death that they died. No, what he's saying is that this is not about a physical demise. Jesus is focusing in on a spiritual atrocity. That's a universal obligation. It's an individual accountability that we must face the need of repentance and do what the Lord says with regard to that. In examining this idea, that we must repent, it makes sense for at least two reasons. It makes sense for reason number one, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And reason number two is because the Lord expects each of us to address that sin problem in the way that the Bible says to. In Acts chapter 17 and verse 30, Paul is speaking on Mars Hill and he says, in the times of this ignorance, God winked at, but now commands all men everywhere to repent because He is appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he has ordained, wherever he has given assurance unto all men, in that he has raised him from the dead. I want to point your attention to a church that Paul had a very special relationship with. The Apostle Paul was responsible, it seems at least in part, for the establishment of the church of Corinth, according to Acts chapter 18. We read in Acts chapter 18 and verse 11 and we see that Paul camped out in Corinth for a year and six months teaching the word of God to the people there and the church is flourishing and growing. Things are going well, but there are problems in this place. And so the Apostle Paul writes that first letter to the Corinthians in which he addresses some disunity, some division, and he urges them to be one in Christ and one in their relationship with one another. Well, sometime shortly thereafter, the Apostle Paul is able to write a second letter in which he says that they have addressed a lot of those problems and that the majority of them have now in fact become united in Christ and with one another. That being the case, the Apostle Paul has words of commendation to them. It's a very personal letter in which Paul lets his hair down and talks about some of the struggles that he is having, his concern about those that didn't accept his apostleship, but he also is showering the letter with thoughts of comfort. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1. But he focuses in on these Corinthians, and he talks about how they had really taken to heart what he had written them in the first letter. I want to focus your attention on 2 Corinthians chapter 7, And the reading is from verse 8 through verse 11. So if you have your Bibles and you want to turn there, that's really where this lesson is going to be taken from. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning at verse 8. And the Apostle Paul says, For though I caused you sorrow with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I say that this letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful, according to the will of God, so that you might suffer loss in us through nothing. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance not to be regretted, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong, In everything you demonstrated yourselves to be pure or innocent in this matter. Of all that the Apostle Paul is saying in this letter and in this passage, I believe he gives us one of the most comprehensive definitions of repentance that there could be. He's moved by the Holy Spirit, so these are God's words through Paul to tell us what's involved in the process of repentance. You know, it's not an act, though it does involve an act. It's a process that's ongoing. The Apostle Paul recognizes this and helps us to see that progress that needs to take place in our spiritual lives. You know, if we're going to pursue New Testament Christianity, we must pursue that unworldly concept of repentance. Bill Blankshane and Eric Erickson wrote a book not too long ago entitled, You Will Be Made to Care. And he talks about how... uh, Theological progressives have indicated that there that we should no longer call sin, and there's a disdain for that. But there's a next step in which we must tolerate and then embrace what the Bible calls sin. In the Proverbs chapter 17 and verse 15, the one that exalts wickedness and that persecutes righteousness, both of them alike are an abomination to God. If we want to pursue the kind of Christianity that the New Testament reveals to us. There is a change that needs to be made in our lives. That change the Bible calls repentance. Let's look at the three steps in the process of repentance. The first step in that process as we examine 2 Corinthians chapter 7 is the step of devastation. Do you notice that the Apostle Paul focuses in on this idea of sorrow? In fact, if you were to look at those four verses that we just read, you'll find that the Apostle Paul uses the word sorrow or sorrowful seven times. This idea of sorrow is an emotional or mental distress. Now, if you'll notice, the Apostle Paul talks about two different kinds of sorrow in the text. There is a sorrow that's according to the will of God. It's a godly sorrow. And there is a sorrow that is a worldly sorrow, a sorrow with regret, the sorrow of the world that produces death. Sorrow, emotional and mental distress in both cases. But there's a huge contrast in what each of them produces. The Apostle Paul is saying to the Corinthians that you're going along the road to repentance in the way that God wants you to do because you are sorrowing, you're having a devastation that's established for the right reasons. You know, if you read the book of Acts, which is the history book of the church, you're going to find this mental distress that is that is felt by two different parties, two different kinds of parties. The first kind of party, the first party that we mentioned, are those who come face to face with their sin. They listen to a messenger talking to them about the reality of sin and the impact of sin, not only in this life, but in the life which is to come, and there is a godly sorrow that they feel. Could there be a better example than the first time that, that Jesus Christ was preached? And you have the apostle Peter and the other apostles speaking to that mass of people present on the day of Pentecost. And he preaches a sermon about Jesus and especially his crucifixion. And then in verse 36 he says, and, uh, therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that this Jesus whom you have crucified, he has made both Lord and Christ. And when they heard these things, they were pricked to their hearts and said unto Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? The people that were present that day who gladly received the word, especially were those who came face to face with their sin and they heard the price tag of sin and they said, I want to do something about that. I've broken the heart of God. When we think about their feelings, we might say, well, yes, these folks may have personally had some involvement in the crucifixion of Christ. And maybe we're saying, I know I'm guilty. I was there. I spit on him. I went up and I mocked him or maybe even struck him. But when we come to see our personal involvement in sin, We read passages like Isaiah 53, verse 5 and 6, and we see that he was wounded for our transgressions, the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed, that all we like sheep have gone astray, and have turned every man to his own uh, way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It becomes very personal. You you know, the, the Bible talks about that good and honest reply when we think that we might be guilty against our Lord. Even on the night that Jesus was betrayed, in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 22, Jesus is warning them that one of them is going to betray him. And in response to that, they were deeply grieved. There's our word. And they said, surely not I, Lord. But you know, there's another word. It's a different word that is used to describe people's reaction to hearing the gospel preached to them. It's the word that's found in Acts chapter 5 and verse 33 of the Sanhedrin council and the feeling they had when Peter and John were preaching to them. And it's the feeling that is described by Luke in Acts chapter 7 and verse 54 as the people are listening to Stephen preach his indicting sermon. They were cut to the quick. They were cut to the heart. But it did not make them grieve over their sins or be sorry for their sins. It made them angry, boiling over. It made them want to make the preacher sorry that he had said anything about that. You see, we have a choice between either of these reactions when we are confronted with the reality, the presence of sin in our lives. We can feel godly sorrow that makes us hurt that we hurt our Lord, that our Lord had to die because of our sins. We can get angry and defensive and and rationalize, give excuses for why... We are staying involved in that activity. But when I think of the kind of attitude that one ought to have, I think no wonder that God calls him the man after his own heart for Samuel 16.7. God looks on the heart of David and he sees what happens in the wake of his egregious sin with Bathsheba and with Uriah the Hittite. And when Nathan the prophet comes to him and confronts him with his sin and he realizes just what he's done and his eyes are open to the magnitude of his iniquity, what he does is he sits down, no doubt with tears in his eyes, and he pins by inspiration the 51st Psalm. What does he say? He says in verse 8, make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones which you have broken may rejoice. In Isaiah 51 and verse 12, he says, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. And in verse 14, he says, Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, you God of my salvation. My tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. When we're confronted with the reality of our sins, we have a choice. We can cause it to let us boil over in anger at the messenger. Or we can feel remorse but do nothing about it. Isn't that Judas' problem? In Matthew 27 and verse 3, he felt sorrow, but instead of changing and making things right, he goes out and he hangs himself. Or we can rationalize and justify. But what he wants us to do is to look at the cross and to see the reality of our sin hanging him there. He wants us to look into our own lives and in examining ourselves, look at our sin problem humbly and honestly. Well, if we look at this process of repentance that the Apostle Paul lays out for us, the first step in that process of repentance is the step of devastation. Feel sorrow. Break your heart over your sin. But then second, I want you to notice that involved in this process of repentance is the concept of, of direction in Second Corinthians chapter seven, the concept of direction. Well, where do we see that? It's in the word repent. When you see that word repent, it means a change of mind that leads to a change of action. It also reflects a change of thought and a change of attitude towards sin and toward righteousness. Well, the Apostle Paul says that when you received my letter and you came face-to-face with the things that needed to change in your life, you repented. Well, when I read about that word in the New Testament, the word repent, I come to find out that this is a pivotal word. It involves the mind, but it's a pivot point that causes the action to change. That's why we say the word direction. When I come face-to-face with the devastation of my sins, I determined that I'm going to go a different direction. You'll find that the word for repentance is an action word. It's not just a, a conceptual word, an abstract term at all. Not at all. When you begin to look in the New Testament, that word, the main word that's translated repentance, is found 22 times in your New Testament. Look at the actions associated with it. In Matthew chapter 3 and verse 8, John the Baptist tells his listeners that there needs to be fruits of repentance that are, are sown or shown or brought forth. In Acts 26 and verse 20, the Apostle Paul is calling for acts that are commensurate with repentance. In Romans 2 and verse 4, Paul says, Do you not know that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? In 2 Timothy 2 and verse 25, uh, that repentance leads to a knowledge of the truth. And then in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9, Peter talks about how the patience, of God leads you to repentance. We won't get away from the concept of action, but I want you to see also God's action involved in repentance. It is His kindness. It is His knowledge. It is His patience that leads us to repent. When I get a hold of what God is willing to do and what God has done to take care of my sin problem, what won't I do to try to take advantage of that of that ability by repenting. Yes, when I, I see what price that God was willing to pay, it begins to change my heart and my mind if I'm really paying attention to God's word. You see, it was God who had such a willingness to take care of my sin problem that God came down in the flesh. And he, through Christ, Jesus, he looked out through human eyes. He was equipped with a human mind. He felt in human skin. He was willing to pay the ultimate uh, price. He lived over three decades of existence on this earth, the last three years of which he found himself resisted and opposed by influential and powerful people. How many of the multitude of passages that are out there that say that he was tempted at all points like we are, yet without sin, and then he pays the ultimate price? for our sins. His love and his gift should reach into our hearts. You see, he who loved like no one else could love, John 15 and verse 13, was hated more intensely than anybody else ever has been. He who helped in ways that folks had never seen help before was hurt in every way that affliction could be handed out. He who gave everything, 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 8, had everything taken from him, had justice, had fairness, had kindness, and then ultimately had his life taken away from him. And when I get a hold of that, it's going to change me. It's going to move me. Several passages talk about what Jesus was willing to do in my place so that repentance is even a possibility for me. A change can be made. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, for example, says that God made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. It is through his sacrifice that we're able to be made a new creature. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. That by him we're reconciled to God. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 19. We can be made righteous who are unrighteous, holy who are unholy through his substitute sacrifice. Or how about Galatians 3, in verse 13, where the Apostle Paul says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, as it is written, Cursed is every man that hangs upon the tree. Peter adds to the discussion in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 22-24, through who says that he did no sin, neither was there any deceit in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but he kept on committing himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins, in His body on the cross, that we should die to sin and be made alive to righteousness. Second Peter two, verse twenty two through twenty four. In Charles Hodges' book Amazing Grace, he he writes in different chapters about the requirements of grace, and one of those requirements is repentance, of course. And he illustrates the not only the need but the beauty of repentance with the story of the prodigal son in Luke fifteen, verse eleven through thirty two. He said that that boy who was coming home saw an old, broken-hearted dad run. He saw grace. The older brother didn't see grace. The other brother brother didn't want grace. The older brother rejected grace, but not the prodigal son. In essence, he said to his father, I will will be a servant. I will live in town. I will go before the church. I will face the, the older brother. I will live in town. If you're willing to love me this much, there's not anything that I won't do for you. And I believe that when our hearts are open to the reality of what God has done for us on the cross of Calvary, we'll fall over ourselves in order to repent. When I look at what Paul is saying about repentance in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, I see yes, that it involves a devastation, a sorrow over sins, but it also involves a direction, a willingness to repent and go another way because of what our Lord has done for us. And then it leads us to the final step of repentance that we read about in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And that's a demonstration. You'll notice in verse 11, the Apostle Paul says that this, um, that he's already said in the verses previous, uh, led it produced something in you. If you think about where we've been so far, we see that repentance involves a conviction of the heart it involves a determination of the mind but it also involves actions in the body you know the apostle paul having to reach out to these brethren this is not the first time he reached out to them and he helped to minister to them in order for them to obey the gospel think about their lives before they came into christ the apostle paul says do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of god do not be deceived neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, uh, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God, and such were some of you. But you are washed, but you are sanctified, but you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. The Apostle Paul there in 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11 through says, wow, look at the changes that you are willing to make. But then there are the the changes that needed to be made in their lives at the time. These are Christians. The Apostle Paul says, you've got to make some changes. You're embracing somebody who's living in sin and you're you're glorying in that. And that doesn't need to be the case. You need to take care of that problem in the biblical way. You need to remove that person from among you, that leaven that's leavening the whole lot. You need to restore the purity of the body of Christ. And there were the myriad of other personal problems that they had to address And in 2 Corinthians, you see the process at play. The Apostle Paul lists some things that they did. And I don't think he's giving them a checklist. Here's the bottom line. He's saying that the things that you needed to change, you you set out to make sure that you change. Let, Let me just walk you through very briefly the seven things that the Apostle Paul said that they did in order to address this. How did they demonstrate their repentance? Well, there was an urgency. There was a a desire to take care of the problem immediately, to not let it sit there, not let it hang out there and say, oh, I'll deal with that problem uh, later on in life or down the road or or just even the nebulous later. They were wanting to address it right now and not let that go on. But you'll also see that there was a defense, not a self-defense or being defensive in posture, This is from the word apologia. This is the idea that I want to prove my innocence. I'm going to make an apology for the repentance that has taken place in my life. That's the attitude of repentance. That's the demonstration that needs to take place. The Apostle Paul told another church that in Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may increase? Increase may it never be. How can we who have died to sin live any longer therein? Romans chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. No, there is a desire to get in there and say, I'm going, I can show you that I'm trying to live more like Jesus every day. I, I, my life has been being transformed, Romans 12 and verse 2. I am walking in the light in which I find assurance and forgiveness, but I'm walking there, 1 John chapter 1. And so there has to be this ability to say, look, you can look at my life and see, I'm not the person I was before. I'm not going to be sinlessly perfect ever. Can't make it there. None of us can, but I'm striving to walk behind Jesus every day. I read about a Brazilian man who loved the Marvel comics for one thing. and He entered into a costume uh, contest and he liked the Hulk. And so he painted his body green, but he, he used a paint that was reserved for uh, nuclear submarines and ballistic missiles, and so he um, he wins the contest, and he goes home and he takes a shower to try to wash that paint off, and he it doesn't it doesn't come out, so he takes another bath, and another bath he takes 25 baths according to the local media using solvents and paint stripper, and he's still green. The poor man thought he was always going to have his skin dyed. Uh, fortunately for him, ultimately. It wore off. You know, sometimes I wonder if we're like that. We keep asking God to forgive us for sins that he's forgiven us of over and over and over again. He's already assured us. Look at Psalm 51 of the man who's broken by sin who has an assurance that God has indeed forgiven him. And so we don't want to ever get there, but we also want to find ourselves where we're saying, Lord, I'm trying. Brethren, I'm trying to do what's right. A third thing that they did, we notice here, was they showed displeasure. There was indignation. When they looked at the sin of their lives, there was not an embracing of that or calling it good. You you know, we we live in a day-to-day that was like Isaiah's day in Isaiah 5 and verse 20. You you know how he talks about the inversion, those that called good evil and evil good, that put uh, bitterness for sweet and sweet for bitter and light for darkness and darkness for light. They were confused. Or the people who lived in Rome, in Romans chapter 1, verse 32, knowing the judgment of God that those who do such things are not only worthy of death, not only do them, but take pleasure in them that do them. The Corinthians were not that way. They were saying, oh, this sin is ugly. Not something to be cherished. Then we also see that they showed alarm. That's the word phobos, or fear. This is not a word that we can reduce to respect. They, they felt a dread. You know, back in the old days, the gospel preachers used to say, I'd be ashamed to be afraid, or I'd be afraid to be ashamed of the gospel. When it comes to the presence of sin in my life, I'd be ashamed not to be afraid. Again, it doesn't shut me down. It doesn't cause me to wallow in guilt and to wring my hands, but it makes me afraid of not having a vigilant attitude, an active attitude against the sin in my life. The Corinthians also showed a desire, alone. And there's an implication that you lack the thing that you long for. A desire to get to a place spiritually. What should we long for? We should long for forgiveness from God and fellowship with God's people and the peace that passes all understanding. Not like the Gentiles who uh, the Apostle Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. This I say, therefore, and testify the Lord that ye henceforth walk not as other the Gentiles walk in the vanity of their minds, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the, the ignorance that is in them according to the hardness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lasciviousness to work all kinds of uncleanness with greediness. That's not the Corinthians. Their feelings are intact. And they have the proper feelings about their sin problem. And then there's a dedication. They say, what he says, what zeal? And that's a zeal to not only avoid what's wrong, but a zeal to do what's right. How do I know if repentance is occurring in my life? Do I have that zeal? A zeal that runs away from evil? Like Joseph ran out of Potiphar's wife's house. And also a zeal that runs toward good works. We're created for those, aren't we? Ephesians 2 and verse 10, to walk in those. And then he also said that that they demonstrated a discipline. Now, this is the word that I I say that word because there was an avenging. Maybe this is an avenging against the the, the ones who stood against the apostleship of Paul. Certainly there was a a vengeance in obeying 1 Corinthians chapter 5 such that the apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 2 would say, hey, let up. Show him some compassion so that he's not overcome with overmuch sorrow. But they are, are going to make sure that right is protected. So, again, this is not a checklist, but it is a representation of somebody who is sorrowful over sin, who wants to change the direction of their lives, who is able to produce indeed those fruits of repentance, a demonstration that says, I'm not the old man, I'm the new man. That's how Paul would would paint it for us in Ephesians chapter four, verse 20 through 24. You've put off the old man, you've renewed the mind, you've put on the new man. This is something that's said about those who are already Christians. When you think about the plan of salvation, God's plan of redeeming humanity, it begins with the grace of God That brings salvation, Titus 2 and verse 11. It begins with a sacrifice on the cross of Calvary that's made vicariously, that is in our place, for us, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. It begins with a story of wonderful love that we are not worthy of, but we are the recipients of, Romans chapter 5, verse 6 through 9. But by grace we're saved through faith, Ephesians 2 and verse 8. What kind of faith does the Bible teach? It teaches a faith that certainly believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Without it, it's impossible to please Him. Hebrews 11 and verse 6, Jesus Himself says, He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. It leads us to repent, the very thing we've been talking about throughout this lesson. On the day of Pentecost, when they asked men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. We confess with the mouth that Jesus is the Son of God, Romans 10, verse 9 and verse 10, and we are baptized to wash away our sins, Acts 22, 16, reenacting the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, Romans 6, 4 through 6. The old person is put to death. We rise to walk in newness of life, Colossians 2, 11 through 13, and Colossians 3, and verse 1, by baptism, we are put into Christ, We're clothed with Christ. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 27. Peter just simply says, baptism saves us. When I look at that entire plan of salvation, what's the hardest thing to do? To come to an acknowledgement that of all the things that are competing for our belief system, that the belief that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, I, I know that there is some effort involved in that, some sacrifice, some thought, some reason, I don't think that's the hardest part of the plan of salvation. And I certainly don't think it's baptism. We're passive in that. We allow ourselves to be lowered in water. Hardest part of God's plan of salvation in getting into Christ and living in Christ with the sin problem that we continue to have is repentance. But Paul tells us how it happens. The ancient writer Virgil, he tells us about a punishment the Romans reserved for their worst criminals. It was a punishment in which that the living criminal was tied face-to-face and hand-to-hand with a corpse. And they were required to carry around that corpse everywhere until the stench and perhaps the disease of that corpse drew the very life out of the condemned criminal. Certainly cruel. Certainly something that no one would ever want to do. Is there anything that bad? Well, two things. Number one is hanging on to the old man when there is no need to. Number two is hanging on to an old man that God has removed through our obedience to Christ. Don't hang on to the old dead you if you've been forgiven. But don't hold on to the old man when there's a way to be made. That's what repentance is so pivotal in our understanding of what God wants us to do. I hope that you'll consider these words, these thoughts from 2 Corinthians 7, 8-11 and see that process of repentance, devastation, direction, and demonstration. May God bless us as we seek to do that.